Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Ryan Epley. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence, and I always look forward to opening up the Word of God with you to hear what He has to say uh, to, to us today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and find your way to the Gospel of John. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, there should be one provided for you in the seat in front of you. Um, it's on page 886 is where we're going to be. If you're in the amphitheater, you'll see the, the entrance door you came in. There's a whole rack full, full of Bibles. You can grab one of those. Page 886 is where we're going to be. And as you guys are finding that uh, passage in John chapter 1, there's something that many of you already know about, but we just need to be aware of, that we have entered into a new phase, a new age of photography. Like, we're, it really, like, since we're in a new age of photography, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's a worldwide phenomenon that's going on right now. And many of you guys will know what I'm, what I'm about to say. You guys know this. It's the phenomenon of the selfie. Have you, guys, you, know, you guys know what a selfie is. It's where you take your camera or your phone and you literally take a picture of, of yourself. And this is getting so much traction. I mean, worldwide, in London, just a couple years ago, they had a whole art gallery, a national art gallery that had a whole section of nothing but selfies. They said that, that, the, that the selfie is now the modern day self-portrait. I don't know if I go so far as to say that, but it's getting traction because what they want to say is that people are taking selfies to, to, to show themselves off. Look at me. Look at this. Look at this. You need to see me. And so psychologists have been talking about it. Like, what is, what is this all about? This whole selfie trend? Is that just narcissism at its finest? Or is this not such a bad thing? What, what is this whole selfie thing about? So Art's getting in on it. It's, 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 it's art, it's, it's photography. Marketing's getting in on it. So I don't know if some of you guys have seen this before, but this is actually a selfie stick. Have you guys seen this? You, you put your phone on there so you can get the best shot of yourself. You know, you want to make sure you look the best. You, you put your phone on there and you hold it out there and there's a little button you push and you actually take a picture of yourself. I mean, we want to, everybody to see us, to look at us. And one journalist was writing and said that, he called this phenomenon, this craze, he said, it's a look at me mania. It's a look at me mania. Look at me. Well, what's interesting here in, in John chapter 1, we're just going to look at two verses, 29 and 30. But let me give you the, the, the setup of this, the context of this. There are people coming to this guy, John the Baptist, not the one that wrote this book, a different guy. They're coming to John the Baptist, wanting a selfie of John. In verse 19 and following, they're asking him all these questions. They're wanting to know who John is. We want to see you, John. Tell us who you think you are. Show yourself off to us. So if you look through these couple of verses, you can just glance. They're asking him, who are you, John? People are literally leaving cities to go out to unsafe areas to hear John preach. They're leaving the comfort of cities and they're walking hours to hear John the Baptist preach on repenting and believing. And so these people come out and they're like, John, what, what are you teaching? What are you doing? We want to just get a, 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 a selfie of who you are because people really seem to think you have something very important to say. So who are you, John? What is this all about? So they ask him, who are you? What do you say about yourself in verse 22? And they keep asking him all these questions. Why are you baptizing? Why are you doing this? Are you this Elijah guy in the Old Testament? Are you a prophet from the Old Testament? Who are you, John? And this is what I love what John does he kind of glances off their questions. Because what he says is, guys, you've come out here with your cameras facing towards me and you've got them pointed the wrong direction. It's not about me. You need to, to turn your camera around and to look and behold 
Jesus Christ. So these people come out here to hear about John, and this is what John does to them. He turns the camera around in verse 29, and this is what he says. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I have said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Let's pray. Take a moment right now just to pray. Take a moment right now just to pray that God would speak to you this morning. Take a moment just to pray for me that I would just put God's glory and beauty on display the best that I can this morning. Father, we come into this room a bunch of sinful people who are, are broken, um, who oftentimes want to build ourselves up by telling others to look at us, Lord, but when we just stare at ourselves, Lord, we know that that leads to depression and anxiety. And what we need more than anything this morning is we need to see you. We need to behold you. And so I ask this morning, Holy Spirit, would you just stir our hearts that we would be able to see you and all of your beauty and your worthiness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John starts with this pointing to, to Christ and he says, behold. Now this is, a, this is a very powerful word that he's using. Behold here. It's not just to look. It'd be more like, look, 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 look. You don't want to miss this. This is something that John says, you need to grasp this. You need to think on this. You need to realize this. This is not just, oh, there's Jesus, you know, look. No, this is, this is so important. And John thought, thought it was so important. Just a few verses later in verse 36, he says it again. Verse 36, behold the Lamb of God. He wants people to see and to realize and to grasp who Jesus is. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna walk through this to reveal the Lamb of God that has shed his blood for us. So first he says, behold the Lamb of God. Now, this is really interesting because of all the animals to be called, a, a lamb? Isn't that just a, a little bit odd? I mean, as, as a guy, if I was there and somebody called me a lamb, I'm pretty sure I would correct him real quick. You know, but no, you can call me a, a, like a bull or you can call me a, an, an ox or a lion, you know, something very strong. I mean, you can call me the eye of the tiger if you want to. Like, you can call me something like that, but a lamb? Like, what are you talking about? And I, and I even think if I looked at my wife and I, and I called her a lamb, she'd be like, well, you call me like small and furry? Is that, is, that what you're, is that what you're calling me right now? <laughs> like, there's, there's, there's nothing good with that. I mean, you think about a lamb, it's just like a soft and cuddly little quadruped that uh, it's, just, it's just there. Like, what is a lamb? There's no, no power behind a lamb. Well, to understand the context of, of the Lamb of God, what John is doing is he's actually, he's pointing back to the Old Testament. And to understand this comment that the Lamb of God, you have to understand the whole, the grand narrative, the whole story of the Bible, because this is something that is woven through all of Scripture. So when John says it here, it's a very powerful statement that a lot of times we kind of glance over or we miss. But the reason why he said Lamb of God is, you can go all the way back to Genesis. Some of you guys know this story with Abraham. God promises Abraham, and we've been talking about it a little bit as we walk through this Roman series, I'm going to bless you. I'm gonna make a father of many nations. And then he gives him a son, Isaac. And he's like, do you really believe me, Isaac? Because I'm gonna challenge you. I'm gonna say, 
I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Do you believe in me that much? Which sounds monstrous to say. But Abraham knew that God would provide. And so if you read the story in Genesis 22, you'll see that Abraham is standing with his son, Isaac. And Isaac's like, Dad, I see we're about to make this sacrifice. And I I see the wood and I, I see the knife, but where's the lamb? And Abraham's response is, God will provide the lamb for us. God's going to provide the lamb. If you trace that story, what you see is that's what God, God provides a substitute for Isaac. So Isaac doesn't die. It's, it's a painting a picture. It's an echo of what is to come. And then you, you fast forward a little bit more and you get to Exodus. And there's a story of the Passover. This is years and years later. And there's a story of the Passover where Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. And the wrath of God is coming on the Egyptians and even the Israelites for their disobedience. And he tells them, guys, there's a destroyer that's going to come. He's going to kill all the firstborn. And the only way you'll be protected is if you sacrifice a lamb and you take the blood and you spread it on your doorposts. When you spread it on your doorpost, then the destroyer will come and pass over your house. So just in the first few chapters of the Bible, first few books of the Bible, you see that this picture of a lamb is a substitute that dies in the place of someone else. And you see the lamb is a protective covering so that someone wouldn't have to face the wrath of a holy and perfect God. And you fast forward a little bit more and you get to the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus, it talks about a lamb being slain for the atonement of sins. That at that time, that Atonement meant just to cover it up, that, that sins would literally be covered by the shedding of a, of a lamb's blood. And then you, you fast forward even farther and you get to the prophets and you get to Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, there's a, there's a quote in there that's talking about the Messiah who would be to come that would save us from our sins. And he calls him a lamb again. He's saying there's this Messiah that's going to come and he's going to be the one that protects, that, that is a substitute, that atones for sin. And then we roll onto the scene here in John chapter one, and that's exactly what happens. He says, behold, the lamb of God. What this is doing is that John is saying, all those echoes in the Old Testament, Jesus is the voice. All these shadows that you've seen in the Old Testament, Jesus is the object. So this is a bold statement that he's saying, and Christ is fulfilling this mission. Guys, we gotta grasp this, what Jesus is doing right here when he says, I'm the Lamb of God. He's making this bold statement. John's making this bold statement about Jesus. He is the one that would be our substitute on the cross. Christ died on the cross so that we would not have to. He is our substitute. He is the Lamb. Christ is our protection. We don't have to face the wrath of God because Christ was our propitiation that took on the full wrath of God in our place. He's the one that not only atones for sin, Jesus didn't just die and cover up our sins. We'll read in just a little bit. He took him away from us. He completely took him away. And so when we see, behold, John's like, grasp this. You have to understand this. You have to know this. Jesus is the lamb of God. And we can, we can trace this throughout the scripture and be, be amazed that, oh, this is really incredible how God is, has laced all of the Bible with this story of the lamb. But then we don't even let it 
affect our hearts and our minds. Because it is one thing for us to think about the gospel and to know how the gospel got to us through Christ and the shedding of his blood and the raising from the dead. But we have to think about what he did. We have to think about the mode of how the gospel got to us, that we would reflect that, that we would reflect the gospel. In the book of 1 Peter, just a few chapters later in the New Testament, Peter starts to quote this idea of the lamb as well. And he's talking about the pure and spotless lamb because throughout the whole Old Testament, that's what you see over and over again, that the lamb that was sacrificed had to be innocent, had to be pure, had to be spotless. It couldn't be broken or um, defective. It had to be perfect. And what Peter does is he applies this to us as believers and he says, you be holy, therefore, as God is holy. We behold the lamb and his holiness and his perfect nature, which was sacrificed for us, and we reflect that. We can't be our own God, but we reflect God. And this is so important that we grasp holiness and we reflect it. God's word calls us to be holy, therefore, as he is holy. Holiness means to be, to be set apart, to be different. Guys, we as Christians need to examine our lives. We need to look at our, our lives and see if it's any different than a dark and, and, and an unbelieving world. I mean, if, you, if you paired your life up against a believer, what would it look like? Because think about it, even non-believers work hard and they go home and watch TV at night. They enjoy hanging out with friends on the weekend. They stay away from really grotesque sins. Like even non-believers do those things. So how is, how is our life different from theirs? We're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be different. How is our life different from them? We have to, we have to answer this question. It's important because of this verse in Hebrews. Listen to this verse. It should be on the screen, but Hebrews twelve fourteen. It says, strive for peace with everyone. Don't miss this. And for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So how does that play out? I mean, what does that look like? What, do you, what does that verse mean? Well, just a few weeks ago, I was... Um, a few Sundays ago, I was outside and I was talking to one of my neighbors and we started talking about the gospel and I'm sharing with her and talking to her about eternal life. And I asked her, what do you think eternal life, how, how do we get eternal life? I just asked her that. And it's a real good conversation. And she says, well, I know the answer that I've heard because I've been in church. She said, I, I know the answer, which is to believe in Jesus. But she said, I just struggle with that, Ryan, because you know, being around the church at times, I see people will say they believe in Jesus, but then they go out and they live these really sinful lives and then they come back and they confess and then they go out and do the same thing over again. He's like, There's, she said, it just doesn't seem to be any change in their life. And this is her word. She said, Ryan, I just feel like there should be some kind of heart change that is different if you're really a follower of Jesus. I just, she said, I just think there needs to be a heart change and I just don't see it. And I realized in that moment, that verse in Hebrews she hasn't been able to see God because she hasn't seen the holiness of a Christian. 
She can't see the living God because she doesn't see any different from our life and her life. This call to holiness is important for the world to see the living and true God. So how do we, how do we be holy? How do we grasp that? What does that look like to, to reflect the lamb in this way? There's, there's a couple things. I, you could say many things. You could do a whole sermon on just the holiness of God. But one is that we, we war with our sin. We war with it. We all will, will fall into the same temptations again and again. But it's this heart change of like, I'm fighting. I'm not giving into this temptation. I'm gonna continue to fight and to war against it because I'm not gonna live in that, that lifestyle because Christ died that I wouldn't have to be a slave to that sin. And so we war with it. I know some of you are Christians here and you're like, I've been warned for years. Why do I continue to war with the same sin? Why is that? And I'll give you hope this morning. It's because you're spiritually alive. That's why you continue to war with these sins. I love watching World War II documentaries or World War II movies or anything like that. And what you'll see as you watch these different movies and these different shows about war is you'll see two types of people in, in battle. You'll see one person who is, is running and dodging and, and running away from grenades and diving behind bunkers and advancing and moving forward. They're continuing to fight, fight, fight. And then you'll see another person who's there and they're not moving. They're laying still. Grenade blows up beside them. They don't move. They don't change. The difference between the two is one is a man who is alive and is fighting. The one, the other is a man who is dead. So if you're wondering, why do I continue to struggle and to fight? It's because you're spiritually alive. Christ has stirred up your heart and made you alive. And so you war and you fight against that sin. And you're pursuing holiness by reflecting Christ. That's how we pursue the holiness of God. We behold him and we reflect it forward. We don't just war against our sin, though, but we, we shine into a dark world and we redeem our culture. Holiness is not like becoming a monk and you know, going into your own little secluded room and like thinking about the Bible all day and like now I'm more holy because I've been thinking about nothing but the Bible all day and this is it. Like, no, holiness is, is going into a dark and lost world and being a light there. Being different, allowing people to see that no, there is a heart change. There is a difference for Christians. God didn't call us to reject our culture. He called us to redeem it. Somebody who redeemed for the holiness of God. That's what holiness looks like. So John says, behold the Lamb of God. Second, he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. Takes away our sin. This is, this is huge to take away. This is not just like a sweeping underneath the heavenly rug. And Jesus just kind of like lifts it up, sweeps it underneath there. Like oh, our sins are now swept under the rug. No, this word for take away literally means to break or to destroy. And the means by which Jesus took away our sin and destroyed our sin was the cross. That was the vehicle by which our sins could be taken away. We gotta be careful with this text though because it says he dies for the sin of the world. I've heard people say and complain about Christianity that Christianity is way too exclusive. Like we want to coexist. We want like all roads to lead to heaven. And so like we struggle because Christianity is so exclusive. Well, here's the thing. Christianity is exclusive in the sense that the only way that you could be saved, the only way that I could be saved 
is through Jesus Christ. And his death and his resurrection, that is the only way. If there's any other way that we could be saved, if we could work and be a good enough person to be saved, then the cross would have been the biggest blunder in human history. Like, why would God have to leave his throne and come down to earth to die if we could just be good people and get there? Like, we can't. We can't be good enough. So he came to take away the sins of the world. So people will complain, it's too exclusive. But here's the thing, and this verse points it out. It's not too exclusive. It's inclusive at the same time because whoever would believe in Jesus Christ can have his his sins forgiven. Anyone. So it's exclusive that only through Christ can we be saved, but it's inclusive because anybody can be saved. If you're rich or you're poor, Christ can save you. If you're well-educated or undereducated, Christ can save you. If you're an African or American, Christ can save you and will save you. It's not limited to one group of people. It's open for all people through Jesus Christ and his death and his sacrifice. So it is exclusive through Christ, but it's inclusive that all could be saved. And that should give us hope and excitement. That should fire up our souls to take the gospel to people that don't have it, knowing that the gospel can save them just like it has saved us. We gotta be careful with this verse that we don't take it too liberally and say, okay, well, it says he takes away the sin of the world. So that means that the sin of the world has all been forgiven, that Jesus died. So it doesn't really matter what you believe or what you do, that you're already been forgiven. So we don't need to take the gospel of those people because it says right here that your sins are forgiven. John, John says that. Well, if you turn your Bible just one page in, in John chapter three, verse 36, this is the same, same man speaking who just said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And this is what he says. John the Baptist says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Same guy speaking in both of these. He's not contradicting himself. Another way to say what what John is saying is, John, maybe painting a picture like this, if you could walk up literally to the, the, the door of hell and, and above it you would see written, wrath deserved. Wrath deserved for our sins that lead us to hell. But if you turned and you went the other way and you saw the gates of heaven, what you would see written on the gates of heaven is free gift of grace received. Free gift of grace received. John's like, you, you have to believe in Christ and trust in his grace and receive it to be forgiven. There's not, there's not a contradiction here. He's, he's saying the same thing. And even though this, this grace is free for us, if we would believe and to trust, it was so costly. The sacrifice was huge for this. It's freely given to us, but it cost God his son. It's free grace, but it's costly grace. Think about the sacrifice that Christ gave. I mean, everything he went through in his life. This is the application part. This is the the mode that I'm talking about. This is how the gospel got to us. Think about the lamb of God and what he did to take away our sins. We should reflect that, the hospitality of Christ. Think about it. Jesus was in heaven, seated on the throne in the most exclusive gated community ever. 
And he left that comfy throne and this exclusive gated community, and he came down to a broken and fallen world. That the gospel would go to us. He sacrificed. We too should sacrifice. Scripture says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Like of all people in the history of time to be worthy to be served, as soon as you come down, you can be like, okay, everybody just serve me, do whatever, whatever I tell you to do, just serve me all the time. He took the low place and he served us. So when we look at the sacrifice of the lamb, the application I'm making to you is that we should be hospital, we should serve. Like, we should get up off our comfy couches and we should go out of our gated home and go across the street to build a relationship to share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know this good news. We should be willing to serve and sacrifice because that's exactly the model that Christ gave us. And I'll tell you why we don't do either of these. It's because we've built up this God of comfort. This God of comfort in our lives. And the enemy of this God of comfort, this idol of comfort, is sacrifice. So we're all in on this Jesus thing until it comes to the point where we got to sacrifice. Wait a second, like, you're telling me like people actually sacrifice to make Sunday mornings like this happen? Like, wait a second, you're telling me that that David Horner has been here 37 years and has sacrificed of his life and his time to, to preach the gospel week after week. You're telling me like somebody had to, to like give of his weekends and his time and his effort and his families at time, family. Sacrifice is not convenient. It wasn't convenient for Christ. But he did, he came and he humbled himself and we should reflect that as well. And guys, I know some of you are thinking, well, now is just not the right time for me to sacrifice in this way, to reflect God in this way. Like, I'm just going through a lot. And for some of you, that's true. Maybe right now is not the time. But the, the other 95% of you, the idea of like, I'll sacrifice and give once I make X amount of dollars. Or I'll serve as a deacon or a life class teacher once things have, have calmed down in my life. Or once things with family are, are, are better. Then, then, or once I'm married, then I'll actually reach out to my neighbors because then I'll have somebody else to, to welcome them in the house. All these are mirages, guys. All these are just excuses of why we don't serve. And we will continue to give an excuse after an excuse after excuse. Like we're not gonna get to this destination that we think is there. And we're like, all right, we're, we're stable now. Things are good. Now I'm ready to take it on and to serve. Like, I just really don't believe that that's ever gonna happen. I think we're always following the carrot on the stick in front of us and we're never serving. The best time to sacrifice and to serve is now. And when we sacrifice and serve, that's how our life looks different. People are like, wait, wait a second, you're giving up like one of your days off on Sunday to, to serve? Like, wait, wait a second, you're, you're, you're doing what with your nights? Like you're, you're, you would rather go and pray for the church and to pray for our area? What? Wait a second, wait. You're, you're, you're losing your nights to invite lost people over to your house so that you can just love on them and care for them? Wait, your, your time just looks different from my time. And that's when we start to be set apart as Christians. That's when it starts to, to look different when we sacrifice as Christ has sacrificed. So may we crush this idol of comfort in our lives and instead may we serve and reflect the lamb who sacrificed to take away all of our sins. 
the last thing John points out in these two verses that we read is that behold, we need to grasp, we need to understand that the lamb is worthy. Behold, grasp, understand that the lamb is worthy. This comes from verse 30. He says, of whom I said, after me comes a man, this is Jesus, who ranks before me because he was before me. Go back just a couple verses to 27. He's describing Jesus again. And he says, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This lamb that we look at is worthy. John describes Christ, and he's like, I'm not even worthy to take off his shoe, not even touch him. And sandals were dirty at that time. I mean, they were, they were filthy. You would walk on dusty streets all day. There's animal feces all over the place. And so you literally walk on it. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy to bend down and to loosen the strap of this filthy, dirty shoe of Jesus. He realizes that he has to understand the worthiness of God because that is what impacts and influences everything that we do. If you don't see Christ as worthy, you'll never sacrifice for him. If you don't see Christ as better, then you'll continue to hold on to your sins because you think these are better than he is. But when we see this picture and behold and grasp and realize and love this lamb who laid down his life, Jesus Christ, when we grasp that, then it changes us. It impacts us. In the 18th century, there there were these German Christians who literally sold themselves into slavery so that they could go and spread the gospel in the Caribbeans. Like free men came and they sold themselves. Think about this. This is not a made up story. This is true. These guys sold themselves in order to take the gospel to unworthy people because they realized that they were unworthy. And as they're on this boat and they're getting ready to sail to to St. John's, they're singing this song. And it says, worthy is the lamb to be rewarded for all of the suffering we go through. They're singing this. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy of them being sold into slavery? I mean, that, that is extreme. But they, they, grasp, they grasp the beauty of God and they realize that it's worth it. Now, I'm not saying you sell yourself into slavery. I'm not saying that we're, we're for slavery. I'm saying that is an extreme that somebody took. And what is your extreme that you need to, to step out in faith that the gospel can go forth? We don't take the gospel to many lost people because we think we're too worthy to do that. We've got too much going on. We've got too much going on in our life. And so we don't have time to stoop down and share the the gospel with other people. We're so busy that we can't do this. One pastor back in the 1950s described evangelism as this. He said, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. One beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And when we realize our unworthiness and his worthiness, we want to go and tell everyone of the beauty of our Savior. Through the way we live and through the way we work, through the way we talk, through the way we love, we want to display and reflect the beauty of our Savior. When we get a picture of that, 
It makes us take the gospel to places we never thought we'd go. And that's what I love about the Bible is this whole lamb picture traces all of the Bible. And then at the end, if you want to turn there, in Revelation chapter 5, this is a picture of heaven that John has seen. And he says, chapter 5, verse 6, he says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So John's seen this picture, and he's seen the lamb that has been slain, which is Christ. And then look at verse 9. Look at what they're singing. It says in verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation." that you have made a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. What he's saying here, this is a promise we can cling to, that as we go and we share the gospel with the nations, when we go and we share the gospel in our neighborhoods, people will believe. Because there before the throne, we're gonna see people from every tribe, every tongue and every nation. And that gives us hope to know that the gospel is not gonna come back void. We're not gonna share the gospel and everybody reject people will believe and they're going to be standing there from every tribe, language, people, and nation before the lamb saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Look at verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now at the end of verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This should fire us up. This is the finish line that the lamb will continue to be worshiped because he is worthy of it. And this is our promise and assurance that as we go and we spread the gospel to more unworthy people, just like we are unworthy, that fruit will be born. I'll leave you guys with just one last thought. I want you to think about just for a second of all things, I want you to think about the, the moon. And the interesting thing about the moon is if you, if you really think about it, the moon is basically just a big ball of floating dirt. And it's safe to say, I mean, it's just, really, it's a ball of floating dirt. And I used to think that the moon, when I was younger, I used to think the moon, you know, had light of its own, that it could shine down to earth at night. So like the sun during the day, moon had its light at night. But when you start looking at it, the, the moon has no light on its own. There's nothing within the moon. The moon can't will hard enough to give light. The way that we see light on the moon at night and, it, and how the moon shines into the darkness is that the sun is on the other side and it shines its light and then the moon just reflects that light onto a dark world. It is the exact same for us as believers. We don't cultivate in our heart holiness or this attitude of sacrifice or this idea of unworthiness. What we do is we look and we behold the Son of God And then we reflect that to a dark and unbelieving world. That's what we do. Let's pray. Christ, you are good and you are worthy. You are the lamb that was slain to forgive us from our sins. Whatever sin that we might struggle with, whether it be homosexuality, whether it be lust, whether it be whatever, you fill, you fill in the blank, whatever your struggle is, 
Christ is worthy and can and will take away all of those sins. We thank you for that. Lord, I I pray and ask that you would help us to remember this week to look to you, not to try to work harder to be these things, but to reflect you and to remember, Lord, you are our motivation for why we sacrifice. You are our motivation for why we are holy. You are our motivation for understanding our unworthiness because Lord, you and you alone are the worthy one. So God, help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.